0: Welcome to the Teach Me Lit podcast. I'm Sophie Tuvey, and I love talking about books and helping you to revise for English literature and go deeper in the texts you're studying. Today I'm gonna be talking about what Austen's relationship is with literary tradition and whether there's a moral to her stories. I'm going to be focusing particularly on Pride and Prejudice here. Now, it's worth saying that in Jane Austen's day, a lot of novels were being written by female writers with female characters. Um, But I think it's safe to say that many of these novels were very didactic. um, And by that I mean they had a very clear moral message and usually what happened was the virtuous heroines had to suffer and then eventually were rewarded with happy marriages um, and occasionally any transgressive um female characters would usually be punished um so to give a couple of examples uh, you've got writers like Bernie and Edgeworth and Inchbold um and you've got novels where there's a lot of kidnapping. there's a lot of young innocent women being kidnapped by um corrupt men um and then you know generally speaking the heroine uh, has to put up with an awful lot before she finally gets her virtue gets rewarded. With a good marriage by the end. Now it's at this point I want to say that Austen moves away from a lot of this simplistic morality. As a modern reader we can find Austen's work quite judgmental morally um, but it's it's worth saying this is really tame compared with a lot of the other stuff that was going on at the time. But it's important to note there are other literary influences on Austen and she's the way that Austen's writing, her literary style is deliberately different from a lot of those female novelists. Austen was a big fan of a writer called Johnson um, and he wrote really a lot of varied texts but um, he emphasised rationality and self-knowledge and candour. He also wrote the first dictionary. So you can imagine that his writing was a lot about reason and a lot about um, behaving in the proper way. Um, She was also a big fan of a poet called Cooper who uh, wrote really movingly about emotion. So it's not to say that she's all head and no heart, um, but Austin was definitely influenced a lot by these writers. Now the narrator in Pride and Prejudice has that kind of Johnsonian sense of rationality and uh, satire Um, but I don't think the novel erases emotion. Elizabeth is determined to marry for happiness and she doesn't want to marry without love. Um, So it's not the case of you know simply just doing what's expected of you to do without any emotion and I think that is really important. Um, now Edgeworth as a writer um, wrote about education for women um, and she was talking really about education generally as needing to create people who were independent thinkers and understood the consequences of their own actions. And I feel that's the heart of Austin's moral code is that Austin presents real people who are flawed and they have to deal with the consequences of their actions. Now, um, I want to talk about uh, Lydia Bennett because Lydia is perhaps the most transgressive character in Pride and Prejudice. She's the one who breaks all the rules to run off with Wickham. Now, a few things I think are of note. Firstly, obviously, before this incident, she is established as a most determined flirt. Um, And she's clearly very passionate and youthful. She's quite wild. She doesn't respect decorum. And social standards, um, and her behaviour is seen as very inappropriate. However, there is a sense in which Lydia's liveliness is not a bad thing per se, Um, and in Lydia's bored yawning when Collins tries to read Fordyce's sermons, one could see Jane Austen herself's reaction to those kind of misogynistic equivalent of conduct books for um berating female vice um you know in that sense but ultimately Lydia is not like those kind of heroines in the novel which get kidnapped and held at gunpoint and all that kind of thing um but basically Lydia is a very willing victim she throws herself at Wickham jumps into the carriage as he's running away and obviously he doesn't object now this isn't to erase Wickham's responsibility because clearly uh, Wickham is the villain of this novel and um, he he doesn't uh, take responsibility for his actions. Um, but actually Austen is pretty kind to Lydia in that the voices in the novel that suggest that Lydia should be shunned and cast out for her actions are... Are voices of characters we don't take seriously. So basically, Lady Catherine de Bourgh and Mister Collins. Collins writes a really uncharitable letter, um, which basically um, says they should throw off um, their unworthy child. Um, and the language Collins uses um, is is unbelievable for someone who's supposed to be, you know, a Christian minister um, and I think the response of the family you know Jane and Elizabeth when they read it because their father's absent you know is basically you know just want to tear it up and, and chuck it in the fire because they don't agree with Collins's severity and Lady Catherine too when she visits Elizabeth um, talks about her sister's patched up marriage to Wickham um, and then says that the shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted. And Lady Catherine's snobbery of, you know, how a woman of questionable virtue might pollute the greater state of her nephew is again seen to be a clearly wrong thing. So, Austin's pretty kind to Lydia. Darcy ultimately is acting as a hero because he loves Elizabeth, but ultimately he does save Lydia as well. You know, he pays Wickham. The equivalent of ten thousand pounds to um, get get him to marry Lydia, and he does rescue the situation. He he shows compassion for Lydia by approaching her and saying, you know, she can leave Wickham. Uh, he could protect her. He could help her get back to her family. And it's only when Lydia refuses this help that he, you know, puts events in motion to make sure they get married to save her reputation. But Lydia does have to cope with the long-term consequences of her actions and in the final chapter I've got this lovely resolution obviously of uh, Elizabeth marrying Darcy and Jane marrying Bingley Um, and the other couples in the novel um, are there to contrast with their kind of marital happiness. It says as for Wickham and Lydia their characters suffered no revolution from the marriage of her sisters. Uh, "'He bore with philosophy the conviction "'that Elizabeth must now become acquainted "'with whatever of his ingratitude and falsehood "'had before been unknown to her "'and in spite of everything was not wholly without hope "'that Darcy might yet be prevailed on "'to make his fortune.'" Um, So Wickham thinks he still might stand some kind of chance of, of making a fortune out of Darcy. And Lydia sends Elizabeth a letter. "'My dear Lizzie, I wish you joy.' If you love Mr Darcy half so well as I do, my dear Wickham, you must be very happy. It is a great comfort to have you so rich, and when you have nothing else to do, I hope you will think of us. I'm sure Wickham would like a place at court very much, and I do not think we shall have quite money enough to live on without some help. Any place would do, of about three or four hundred a year, but however do not speak to Mr Darcy about it if you would rather not. (laughs) <laughs> and the kind of shame barefaced um tenacity of Lydia here of asking Elizabeth to provide them with um accommodation of three or four hundred a year um it's it's kind of unbelievable um that she even asked, has the audacity to ask this, but that's Lydia now the narr- the narrator goes on to say. Their manner of living, even when the restoration of peace dismissed them to a home, was unsettled in the extreme. They were always moving from place to place in quest of a cheap situation and always spending more than they ought. His affection for her soon sunk into indifference. Hers lasted a little longer and in spite of her youth and her manners, she retained all the claims to reputation which her marriage had given her. Lydia has to live with the consequences of marrying someone like Wickham. Uh, In other words... He very soon uh, loses all affection for her. And in a sense, it reminds us a little bit of Mr. and Mrs. Bennet, marrying in haste for passionate reasons and then quickly finding out that they're not compatible. Whereas Mr. Bennet was a virtuous man in that he uh, was never unfaithful, uh, Wickham is not going to be that kind of husband. So Lydia is an example of unrestrained female sexuality and she is in a sense punished by having to live with a man who is probably not going to be very faithful to her however she isn't punished in the way that many writers of the day might have sought to punish her by either having her farmed out to some rural cottage where she's never going to be admitted into society again um, or by having her die Um, Or by having her, um, you know, in some kind of precarious um, test-like situation where she is basically forced into um, prostitution or um, has this label of being a fallen woman. So in that sense, um, yes, Lydia pays for what she does, but she isn't overtly punished. And from that, you know, we can deduce that Austen's moral code is clear in the novel, but the kind of standards of behaviour about, you know, love and respect and um, not judging people superficially on their first impressions, as the novel was originally called. But there is a very strong moral code, as given by the title of Pride and Prejudice itself, um, that pride is wrong, uh, that prejudice is wrong, and that to achieve self-knowledge and self-awareness, we have to recognise these flaws within ourselves. And Elizabeth's process, the Bildungsroman roman uh, kind of journey of Elizabeth recognising her flaws um, and dismantling them and overcoming them, that's seen as a moral journey which the reader is meant to imitate. So I feel like Austen's uh, didacticism is there, but I feel like compared with a lot of contemporary female novelists, she has quite a light touch by comparison. Uh, She doesn't have this kind of heavy handed um, punishment of characters who are, you know, morally transgressive. Um, And it's, it's interesting as well, the way that Austen's desire for realism also ties into that because um in holding up writers like Johnson she's moving towards this type of 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 writing that is that is realistic and that's where a lot of these female novelists she often criticizes in her letters um novels she's read which are just too fantastical to be true um so there was one novel called self-control um which by mary brunton which she wrote was excellently meant um but there was a scene in which at the end to escape a situation of basically being abducted um the female character ties herself to a canoe and <laughs> sails down a river in America. Um, and Austen just found this so wildly improbable. Um, she kind of comments satirically in a letter that the character did this as if it was a, an everyday occurrence in her life. Um, and I think that's where the realism of Austen's writing is that she doesn't overtly punish characters. She allows them to uh, live and even prosper to a certain degree because that's what real life is like um now later on Oscar Wilde wrote um in The Importance of Being Earnest uh his character Miss Prism is a a female governess um and she famously says of um when she uh, about reading in a book the good ended happily the bad ended unhappily that is what fiction means and I feel like, in a sense, you can see in Austin you know the characters who are morally good are rewarded. you know there's no question of that Darcy, the hero um is rewarded with marrying Elizabeth and Elizabeth, the virtuous um heroine is rewarded with some financial security and the and a love um in Darcy as well um and we can't really get to the end of the novel and feel like. Um, Lydia has a glittering, successful future because the, the end, the ending makes it clear that she doesn't. However, it is not as simplistic and perhaps as black and white as that quote from Miss Prism might suggest. So, I feel like it's worth when thinking about literary tradition, um, thinking about the Roman, Austen's development of, you know, the the growth of a protagonist from innocence to experience. Um, What she does in the character of Elizabeth Bennet with that. And that's very much a moral education that she goes through. Um, But also how Austen avoids overtly punishing transgressive characters. There's a light touch to the the novel. There is a moral code. But often Austen is using satire and humour to gently make fun of the things that she disapproves of rather than in a heavy-handed way condemn them. So you're gonna think about things like, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. There's a gentle satire here, isn't there, that clearly society's judgments are pretty flawed if if they believe that to be the case. There's certainly, in the depiction of Charlotte Lucas and her decision to marry Collins, there is critique there of a society that doesn't allow women a respectable means of making their own income. Um, And Charlotte's motives for marrying Collins are laid bare. You know, the pure and disinterested desire of an establishment. That is her sole motivation. So there's a sense in which Austin's making it clear that these things are wrong. Um, but I think her use of wit and humour and satire is really significant in the way that she makes her moral code clear. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, please hit subscribe and share it with a friend. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Teach Me Lit. I'm always open to requests, so if you want me to talk about a text you're studying, get in touch. Thank you for listening. See you next time on the Teach Me Lit podcast.